Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 204. We are back. We are back. We missed you guys last week. We did. We had no intentions of missing no. a week of podcasting. but We tried really hard to get that episode out. We kept having to delay it, hoping Josh would get better. Josh got really, really sick. Actually yeah. had the flu. Yeah. Which was gnarly. I don't even think I've ever had the flu before. I don't I haven't seen you that sick in probably like six, seven years, something like that. Yeah, it's been a long time. It was bad. Yeah. It was pretty bad. It hit me really hard and, yeah. and just my chest was I mean, you can probably hear the congestion still yeah. a, little, a little bit. It's it's a lot better since it's been like two weeks now. Yeah. But yeah, it hit me really hard. It was like a knife being stabbed into my chest over and over yeah. again and just like gunk it was just horrible cough was so bad i mean recording would have just been a disaster <laughs> yeah. plus obviously it's different than when we used to just film by ourselves in our basement um right now we, we have, have other people, people yeah. involved i was gonna say please don't come and just like yeah <laughs> spread the flu to everyone <laughs> yeah i mean josh had a really bad fever it was gnarly um and then i got something janelle and i both got something the past week yeah, just some weird shit. Yeah, I don't know. Like some type of cold. I don't think it was like the flu. I Definitely mean, mine not. wasn't. Like I didn't really feel like I was super fevery or anything. No, I never got a fever. It was like my throat. Throat. I'm, like kind of achy. Nose. Yeah. I'm super nasally. My throat is still scratchy. I've got a cough. So we both sound pretty sick still. Um, so bear with us. We're going to have to take breaks as we're speaking. So there'll probably be a little more edits. Yeah, on my this lung capacity is not quite as yeah, high as it normally is. So. Plus, I am almost eight months pregnant now. So you are. It's getting hard to breathe. Yeah, baby's coming here very soon. Yeah, hopefully, not too soon. Not too We've soon. got a lot to do. We haven't done anything. So we do. Anyway, but we today, are here today. Yes. And this episode is very interesting. We're going to be talking about Marvin Hemeyer. I'm sure a lot of you have not heard probably this not, story. Probably not, honestly. And this takes place in Colorado in Granby, which is an area that we love. Beautiful area. It's in the mm -hmm. mountains. It's not it's not super far from Denver. I'd say it's probably like hour and a half or so, two hours yeah. maybe. Mm -hmm. And the biggest lake, Granby Lake, is in uh, Granby, Colorado. Yep. Um, we went there, I think, a summer or two ago and last summer, yeah. Got a pontoon boat. And yeah. Took fun. the took the dogs out there and mm -hmm. it was really it's beautiful up there. I mean, it's a just a little little mountain town. And so the story of Marvin Hemeyer is a, a really interesting one because people have a lot of mixed reactions to the story. And what goes along with Marvin Hemeyer is his killdozer, basically a bulldozer rampage that he goes on. And it's interesting because there's a lot of factors that sort of play into what led him to. Yeah, do what this, led him really. to do this. And so there's a lot of interesting things that we're going to take a look at mm -hmm. um, with this one. But yeah, I don't think a lot of people have heard of this story. I mean, I didn't even heard of it. We live here in Colorado. So yeah, I mean, it was a little bit, you know, you didn't the, heard of it. I ain't heard of it yet. So <laughs> I'm surprised my dad didn't tell me about this story. Yeah. It'd be something like right would up be a story alley. your dad yeah. would be interested in for sure. So yeah, that's what we're going to get into today. Well, let's just go ahead and jump right into the story of Marvin Hemeyer and let's take a look at where Marvin came from, and hopefully we can try to understand a little bit about how everything played out the way that it did. So Marvin John Hemeyer, he was born on October 28th, 1951 in Castlewood, South Dakota, and most people called him Marv for short. He also had a sister and two brothers, and he was very close with his father and was said to have a great relationship. Growing up, he had a pretty typical childhood. He and his siblings helped out on the family's ranch, and Marv was always good at working with the machinery there. Marvin was always known to be polite and friendly, 
But he was also pretty shy and he didn't have a lot of ties to the local area. He didn't have a lot of friends, but he was very smart. And school, however, never really came naturally to him. He's more of a work with your hands kind yeah. of guy versus like mm-hmm. a, a bookworm. But he was smart, even though he didn't have the best grades. Once he was in fourth grade and his teacher told him that he wouldn't amount to anything. What kind of teacher tells their student they're not going to amount to anything? That's a great way to yeah, that's, um, encourage your students to succeed in life. Pretty wild there. After Marvin graduated high school, he decided to enlist in the U.S. Air Force and he was transferred to a base in Denver during the early 70s. And while he was there, he realized that he had a natural talent for welding. He also fell in love with living in the mountains. Marvin promised himself that he'd make Colorado his forever home one day. And in 1977, he was actually honorably discharged from the Air Force, so he decided to buy a home in Denver. Marvin used his welding talents to land a mechanic job at Scotty's Mufflers, a chain of muffler shops in Denver. He and one of his coworkers decided to buy one of the locations themselves in 1978. But after a year, the Scotty's Mufflers chain went bankrupt, and Marvin and his partner couldn't keep the shop going, so they sold it in 1980. And Marvin used that money to open his own shop in Boulder, Colorado. Marvin leased the muffler shop to a man named Doug and his wife. And according to Marvin, Doug was a former alcoholic who cleaned up his act and was looking for a job. He was sort of on a probationary period before Marvin agreed to lease it out to him. Marvin spent six months on vacation while he looked for a house to buy, and eventually he did find one. He found a nice, pretty cheap property in the mountains with great views. I wish we could find nice, cheap property in the mountains with great views now. I know, right? <laughs> that sentence nope. does yeah, not I'm exist like, wow, anymore. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, even like a just a tiny parcel of land is like half a million oh, dollars yeah. in the mountains. So absurd. Now. Seriously. So in the fall of 1991, Marvin moved to the town of Grand Lake. Grand Lake is a mountain town that's sometimes been called the snowmobiling capital of Colorado. Have you guys ever been snowmobiling? No. Yes, you haven't? No, I want to do it so bad. Okay, so fun. Yeah, this winter we're doing it for sure. I can't believe you've never been. I know. It is so much fun. There's something about being uh, out on the snow, going really fast, and and just having trees whip past. I don't know. There's just the rush of the mountain air and being able to Mm -hmm. go up tall, like elevated passes and stuff really fast. It's like skiing without the work. Except the one thing about snowmobiling is that you have to... It's a lot of like balance because it, you can eat, you go over just deep snow in yeah. snowmobiles, and if you lean too far one way, you can actually oh, yeah. f- like flip the it snowmobile. Gives me like jet ski vibes. Yeah, except jet skiing, I'd say, is a lot easier, and oh. it's harder to like tip your jet ski versus mm. like a snowmobile. If you lose momentum, you can easily like flip it, and then it's a pain in the ass to like push it back out of a snowdrift, yeah. and then climb back onto it. And when I was a kid, me and my sister did a thing with our parents, a snowmobiling trip. And we, they told us to stay on this trail. And of course, me and my sister went off the trail. Of course you did. And this couple, this older couple, yeah, me and Annalie did. Like on one together? Mm -hmm. Okay. And this older couple followed us and they followed us to a bad area. And Annalie and I made it off, but they like flipped and it was a big deal. And my parents were so pissed at us. (laughs) (laughs) You can easily get stranded on snowmobiles yeah if you don't know what you're doing but marvin loved snowmobiling like he just absolutely loved it he was like had a whole club and group of friends that would just go up and ripping up and down the mountains Mm -hmm. it's a really good time especially with a lot of people and you can travel great distances on snowmobiles so marvin lived in grand lake for a few months before he decided that he wanted to open another muffler shop so that's when he set his sights on a piece of property down in the nearby town of Granby, which Granby and Grand Lake are 
I don't even know, like what, 15 minutes in between each other. Mm -hmm. They're basically right next to each other. Yeah, it's not too far. Granby, Colorado, again, is about a two-hour drive from Denver, and the town sits on the southern end of the Rocky Mountain National Park. The property Marvin wanted used to belong to an insurance company that went bankrupt. It had recently been foreclosed upon, and the FDIC was about to put it up for a public auction. So Marvin came to the auction, and he was pretty set on making that two-acre property his. But there was another interested buyer who really wanted the property as well. And this person was a man named Cody Docheff. Cody Docheff was the owner of Mountain Park Concrete, a plant that had been in the family for generations. The Docheff family was pretty established in Grand County, and they owned businesses in concrete and dairy industries. Cody had also been in the business for about three decades at that point, so they're very, very established in this area. The foreclosed property was right next to the Mountain Park Concrete plant. He and his partners wanted to create an indoor concrete plant on that lot next door. His business partner, Gus, planned on financing the property, and Gus didn't want to pay more than $50,000 for it, but they figured they weren't going to have to spend that much anyway. They traveled down to Denver for the auction, and the sale seemed like it was pretty much a done deal already. The starting bid for the lot was set at $25,000. When the auction started, Cody bid $35,000, and he thought, you know what, that'd be a good enough bid to scare away any other buyers. But Marvin didn't flinch at the price, and he immediately bid $37,000. Cody wasn't bothered at first, so he raised his bid to 38000 and they thought that this would scare Marvin off. But again, Marvin raised his bid, this time to $42,000. Gus wasn't going to bid any higher, so Marvin won the auction. Marv was pretty satisfied with the deal he got, but Cody was not happy that they lost the property. And after the sale, Cody went right up to Marvin and introduced himself. He told Marvin that he had just bought his property and he was not happy about it. Marvin tried to fix the situation, and he told Cody that he could buy it off of him for $66,000 if he wanted it so badly. But Cody, you know, didn't want to pay that much and angrily refused. That was the first time Marvin had ever met Cody Dochev. Marvin said that Cody was rude, arrogant, and just an all-around asshole. He was pretty shocked by the way Cody had yelled at him. And uh, this guy, uh, come to find out his name was Cody Dochev, he came back there and introduced himself to me about his about the rudest, most arrogant person. I mean, this guy's just a fucking asshole. Come back and just introduced himself, kind of, by just giving me a tongue lashing for about 10 minutes about, you know, who I thought I was and what I was going to do with the property. And I explained to him I was buying it for John Kleiner. And uh, he said he wanted the property. And I said, well, I'll tell you, I'll sell you the property. I said, we were going to pay $66,000. And, uh, you know, I, was, I told him I was selling it to John Kleiner, who was going to start an automotive store there. And he didn't want to have anything to do with it. He said, bullshit. He says, I only got, Gus Harris was his buddy there sitting beside him, I guess. And Gus was sponsoring the whole financing on this thing. And Gus wasn't going to pay more than 50 grand for it. So throughout this episode, we're going to be playing a bunch of different clips from these tapes that Marv recorded of himself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting and you'll, you'll find out why he recorded these tapes later in the episode, but I just wanted to put that out there. But in the end, Marv just sort of brushed it off. The property was his and Marvin quickly got to work on it and started another successful muffler shop. Back in 1991, the population of Granby was only around a thousand people. It was a small town. So most people there kind of knew each other. I mean, in thousand people, town, I mean, you're going to know everybody. So, you know, well, the thing with living in small towns is, and I know you two don't know what this is like, but I lived in a very small town, maybe like 5,000 people or so. Everybody knows 
everybody's business. And you, every time you go to any of the stores, businesses in that area, you always run into people that you know. And there's like good things about that. Obviously, there's a sense of community and there's kind of a comfort level to knowing everybody. But at the same time, it can create a lot of tension very easily as well, especially if you don't get along with certain people. Obviously, a lot of people in the town knew who Marv was and they knew that his muffler shop was the best in town. I mean, some even said he was the best in potentially the whole state. Marv was a likable guy and most people in town got along with him pretty well. He was also pretty well known locally for being the best welder around. Marv took a lot of pride in his work and his skills got him a lot of customers. He genuinely enjoyed his job. Plus in the winter, business normally slowed down so he could take more days off. Marvin was a pretty big outdoorsman. He spent a lot of his free time snowmobiling up in Grand Lake and every Thursday a group of guys in Grand Lake got together to ride through the mountains. All the riders in that Thursday crew loved Marv. He was a snowmobiling king. Every snowmobiler in Grand Lake had one of Marv's expertly welded bumpers. The bumpers never broke, even when they hit rough terrain. Yeah, he built these like super heavy duty, all metal bumpers so that they could just like run over small trees and the branches and other things, just like plow it out of the way. Like off-roading. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was like, you know, on like Jeeps or yeah. off-road vehicles, you can put like a huge beefy bumper yeah. on it. Yeah. He did that on his snowmobiles, which is pretty badass. One of the Thursday crew riders was a 15 year old who had just gotten into snowmobiling. Marvin took the teen under his wing and he taught him how to ride and fix up snowmobiles. Marvin was a natural leader and the crew was more than happy to have him lead the way. Marv also dated a woman named Trisha for a few years and the two of them loved taking road trips together and enjoying each other's company. Trisha loved Marv's confidence and kindness. He was an old school kind of guy and he really treated her well. He had also bought her her own snowmobile and she loved to go riding with him. Marvin didn't make huge amounts of money and he was never a rich guy but he felt very blessed and happy with his life, and for that he considered himself wealthy. Things went smoothly for a while, with Doug working the muffler shop in Boulder and Marvin working his shop in Granby, but after about four and a half years, things went downhill at the shop in Boulder. Doug had gotten a divorce, and his personal issues made it hard for him to run the muffler shop efficiently, so Marvin took it over again and hired someone to look after it. Eventually, he sold off the Boulder shop, and he had enough business up in the mountains to keep him busy. But things weren't always picture perfect in Granby, though. Marv's best friend said that at the time, the Grand County government was sort of a good old boys club, meaning that there were a lot of insider business dealings going on and favors within the same social circle. In the summer of 1992, Marv was setting up his muffler shop and everything seemed to be going smoothly. But then he ran into a problem. The town of Granby sent a notice telling him that he needed to hook up his shop's sewage system to the main sewage line. At first, this seemed like an easy fix, but Marv found out that the closest sewer main was pretty far from the shop, so he would need to construct over 100 feet of sewer pipes to connect to the main sewer. It would take months of construction, and he'd have to pay $100,000 or more of his own money to build it. Plus, the town required that Marvin build an easement for maintenance access to the sewer line, but the easement would have to go through part of his neighbor's property, so he'd have to get their approval too. And that would be a pretty impossible task, considering that his neighbors were none other than Cody Docheff and his business partner, Gus. And obviously, they didn't exactly have warm, fuzzy feelings about each other. So Marvin tried to appeal to the sewer district board. He told them that he couldn't afford such a big fee. The head of the board was a member of the Thompson family. The Thompsons had been in Granby for many generations, and they owned a lot of land there. But unfortunately for Marv, the Thompsons were also good friends with the Docheff family. 
and the sewer board refused to give him any sort of discount. So Marv decided to stay unconnected to the sewer line until he could figure out what to do. Later that year, Marv tried to work out a deal with Gus. Marvin claimed that Gus refused to grant him the easement, but he agreed to sell two acres of his land for $40,000. That way Marv could at least start construction. But three months went by and Gus never followed up about the deal. Marvin decided to stay unconnected to the sewer line since he didn't have much of a choice. Marvin also had some issues with a local journalist named Patrick Brower. Patrick was the editor of Sky High News, and he reported on the Dochiff's conflict with Marvin, and Marvin accused him of writing negative stories to hurt his business. But Patrick denied that accusation and even tried to smooth things over since he didn't have any personal issues with Marv, so he agreed to run a free ad for Marvin in the paper worth $200. But that still didn't settle Marvin's bad feelings toward him. In 1997, things started to get even worse. Gus officially sold the concrete plant to Cody Docheff, and now Cody and Marv were neighbors. Marv tried to talk to Cody and bury the hatchet, but Cody wasn't interested. Marv decided to make Cody an offer. He'd sell him the muffler shop for $250,000, which was $20,000 less than what it was appraised for. That way, Marv could move on to another community that might be more welcoming of his muffler business. According to Marv, Cody said that he'd think about it and get back to him, but he never did. Cody's side of the story is that he agreed to pay $250,000, but Marv raised the price to $375,000. Cody agreed to that price too, but then Marv backed out again. This time, Marv wanted a million dollars for the land, and obviously Cody said no. Then in 1998, the Dochev started construction on a new large concrete plant, and Marvin was not too happy about this at all. The plant was going to be huge, and it would create a lot of traffic and noise around his shop. Plus, there was going to be a ton of dust and pollution blowing right into his property. All of that was going to really hurt his business, and Marv still wanted to try and work things out until he realized that Cody had pulled sort of a trick on him. There were 21 acres of land south of Marv's property that were undeveloped. He wanted to use part of that area to make a parking lot for his customers and connect the shop to the main sewer line. What Marv didn't know is that Cody actually used a zoning loophole to snatch up two acres of land just south of the muffler shop. The little-known loophole was called spot zoning. This meant that the Dochefs could get the land exempt from the normal zoning laws as long as they proved the land served a specific community purpose. Marv didn't know that the Dochefs had gone and done that, and by the time he found out, it was too late to protest the town council's decision. Before we continue with more on Marv's conflict with the Dochefs, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. So by July of 1999, Marv was able to get a lot of locals to oppose the concrete plant's construction. They gave speeches at the town hall meetings and argued that the plant would hurt Granby residents. The pollution would contaminate their air and water supply. The loud noise and traffic problems created would be a huge pain in the ass for people who lived nearby. But Cody argued that the plant would create a lot of new jobs and bring a lot of business to the area. And in the end, the town council decided that they would approve the construction but Cody would still have to follow some pretty strict restrictions. The town council felt that it was a good compromise, but it definitely didn't help solve Marv and Cody's beef. Things got worse, much, much worse. That same month, Marv saw an advertisement for a bulldozer auction in California. He was curious enough about it, and he decided to drive down to Cali and check out the dozer for himself. And he ended up winning one of the dozer auctions, and his new bulldozer was loaded up onto a flatbed truck and driven all the way up to his shop in Granby. Then he put a for sale sign on the dozer and waited. Some people think that he got the bulldozer to intimidate the dough chefs, 
No one ever came by to purchase it, so it just sat there on the property. But no one really knew why he got the bulldozer in the first place. Now, Marv was really angry. He sued the Dochefs and the town of Granby over the whole dispute. And at one point, the Dochefs actually called him and told him that they'd give him an easement if he agreed to drop the lawsuit. But he just hung up the phone. This, I just want to say that this whole story with Marv is there's a lot of contention and, and sort of controversy on, you know, wh- what side the fault falls on, right? Mm-hmm. Is it Marv? Is Marv just being difficult and not being willing to work with the local laws, regulations right. regarding the zoning and all these things and connecting? I mean, when I first heard about this, I'm like, I get it's a lot of money to connect up to a main sewer line, but it's like, it's it's not that weird to have a city or town ask you to do that as a business. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think for Marv, he just felt like from the very jump that everybody was out to get him. And, you know, the fact that he, the Thompson sort of ran the town council and, and, you know, all these good old boys were sort of in cahoots with each other against him. Uh, it was his perspective on the whole situation. But when you look at the other side, they all said, you know, we were all nice to Marv. We've all been very reasonable with him. And all of these things that he's saying that we did to him never really happened. Like we we did our best to work with him, but Marv was just one of those people that was somebody you can't work with, right? He just he had it made up in his mind that everybody was out to get him. And mm-hmm. once once it went past that point, there was no going back for Marvin Lake. Right. He just couldn't get over the fact that he felt like he was being screwed and sort of run out of town. That's what he kept mm-hmm. continuing to say. It was like mm-hmm. I they're like trying to run me out of town. And and like it's hard because I get both sides. I get the, like they were trying to work with him, but also I get Marvin's perspective in that in in small towns, I mean, if you live in a small town, you know, like there are families who have been there for generations and those families really run the town and they run the area around it. And oftentimes they own the local businesses, they own the land. And so like, I know I experienced firsthand, like families that have been there for generations, they kind of get priority over everybody. Yeah. And if you're a newcomer or you're somebody who's an outsider in their eyes, you kind of get shafted a lot of the times. Yeah. And there's a lot of small town politics that come into play. And I think it's kind of a combination of things here. I think it's both small town politics, but also I think Marvin just feels like they're also trying to run him out of town. So he's mm-hmm. he's getting pissed. In November of 2002, the town of Granby informed Marvin that he was violating their sewage requirements. And they were going to be fining him $100 a day until he connected to the main sewage line. Plus, until he connected, he wasn't allowed to run his business. So he angrily wrote out a check to the town to pay for the fines. And in the memo, he addressed the check to the Cowards and Liars Department. <laughs> I kind of love it. Savage, man. Uh-huh. But it just shows. I mean, it shows his mindset at this yeah. point. He's like, screw you motherfuckers. Yeah, this is very You're trying to run to me him. out of town. Marvin was absolutely furious, clearly. And all he needed was the approval for that easement. And he claimed that Cody Docheff refused to give it to him. So now he was stuck. His lawsuit ended up getting dismissed. Marv wanted to appeal the dismissal, but his attorney didn't want to. And that made him even more mad. And he accused his attorney of milking him for money. But a lot of his actions really didn't make sense to people. After all, if his attorney wanted to gut him for money, he would have just agreed to appeal the case. Yeah, he would get even more money that way, but he didn't. He was like, I can't do anything else. Plus, the Dochefs claimed that they'd actually been trying to buy Marv's property from the beginning. It was actually Marv who was backing out of the deals. Marvin believed that he was out of all options. And in 2003, he decided to auction off the property and all the shop's equipment so that he could get out of Granby. So he ended up selling off all his equipment. 
but his bulldozer and the property itself didn't get any buyers. The shop was now empty and basically unusable. Marv could only sit there and wait while it drained his bank account to the point of bankruptcy. Marvin was really upset because he had felt like he had spent, I mean, it's been over a decade there in Granby working on a shop and building it up. And he claimed that he had lost now more than $300,000. And it was all because of Cody Docheff and his cronies in Granby. He just wanted to make an honest living and be a good neighbor. But to Marvin, the town of Granby just wanted to watch him suffer. Had gone to the effort in 91 to rezone that property. And I had screwed up the town's plans. The town had a hard-on for Marv Hemeyer. They didn't stop and think. Marv didn't have any malice towards us. This is a sign to not do this. No, they kept it in their hardened hearts. At this point, Marvin wasn't going to stand for this bullshit that basically he felt like the town and all the people that ran it were putting on to him and trying to just run him out of town. So one day in the summer of 2003, Marv was sipping a beer in his hot tub when he said he received a calling from God Almighty. Nice. He felt at peace when he realized that God wanted him to sacrifice his life in order to make the town of Granby pay for their sins. Yeah, because that would be God's priority, right? Absolutely. Granby. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. And to do what I had to do to make these people listen, to learn, was just above me. And when I realized that one day when I was sitting in the hot tub, and I mean, I was, I was weeping. A oh, no. peace came over me that has only come over me a few times before in my life. Where I knew that what I was doing was tough, but it was the right thing, and that it was above me. It wasn't me. I was doing this because God wanted me to do it. Marvin felt like the town of Granby had destroyed his life. And now he was going to destroy the town. And in order to do that, he needed to turn his bulldozer into a massive destructive tank, which is now known as the Killdozer. On March 22nd, 2003, Marvin passed his house to a friend of his in Grand Lake in order to set off for Granby. It was going to take an incredible amount of work to build the dozer, and Marvin needed to focus all of his energy on crafting it. You know, uh, I didn't stick it in my pocket. I gave it away. You know, it's gone, because now money means nothing to me. I've given my house away. I do not need this cabin here in Grand Lake. I've given my snowmobiles, I've given those away this year. Everything is gone. What I own is just going to be a pittance compared to what I'm going to take. But hopefully the community will learn something from this. So Marvin's plan was to basically live in the old shop while he worked on his bulldozer. Marvin actually set up a sleeping area with just a bed, an air conditioner, a space heater, stove, and a small TV. The bulldozer had to be a beast of epic proportions. It needed to be armored enough to withstand bullets and strong enough to really destroy some buildings or the whole town, hopefully. Plus, it needed to be extremely difficult for the police to get inside of it. Marvin called his project the MK Tank. It's going to be just as perfectly crafted as all of his other welding work. Once he drew up the plans and liked what he saw, he got straight to work. Day and night, Marvin mixed his own concrete, cut up sheet metal, and rebuilt the dozer's main cabin. He turned the cabin into a control center with a decent amount of room to move around in, 
and there was a wooden board for a desk, shelves, TV mounts, and a special cooling system. The dozer's armor was created out of huge steel plates that were a half inch thick. To make the individual pieces of armor, Marv sandwiched homemade concrete in between two of these thick sheets. Then he held up the individual sheets with a lift and welded them together. He attached these dense pieces of armor to the bulldozer to create a bulletproof tank. There was no way the tank could have windows if Marv wanted to be completely secure, so to see outside of the MK tank, Marv installed five security cameras around the outside of the tank. Those cameras were hooked up to three TVs in the dozer's control room. That way Marv could see what was going on on the outside. He also installed a compressed air system that would blow off any debris on the camera lenses. As one last precaution, he installed a three-inch thick piece of bulletproof plastic over the lenses. And now there was no way the police could shoot out his cameras. And Marv didn't want the tank to just mow buildings over. He wanted it to have firepower, too. He had a supply of semi-automatic weapons that he would use against the police in case they tried to interrupt his mission. And he created these three small portholes in the tank so he could stick the barrel of the gun out. And the police's bullets couldn't do much anyway, though. The tank's armor was too strong for a tiny little bullet to get through. Marvin wanted to make sure that there was absolutely no way that the police could get inside that tank, so he couldn't have a simple door on it. In fact, Marv knew that there couldn't be any door at all. He was going to have to lower the entire shell of armor on top of the bulldozer with a lift. That meant that Marv couldn't get outside of the bulldozer himself. Once he was in, he was in. There was no getting in or out of the sealed tank. So Marvin knew that his revenge mission would be the last thing he ever did. And as you can probably imagine, building the MK tank took a huge amount of time. The construction also made a lot of noise. So Marv decided to start sleeping during the day and start working at 5 or 6 p.m. That way, all of the businesses next door would be empty and he could just work in peace. And this was a pretty risky plan. It was going to be very hard for him to not get caught building this tank. So Marv installed security cameras around the outside of his shop so nobody could drop by unannounced. In the fall of 2003, one of the owners of the town's trash company worked out a deal with Marvin. He bought the two-acre property off of him for $400,000. And apparently, the trash company had that sewer line hooked up by the end of the next day. But Marvin was still using the shop, so the trash company agreed to back rent the warehouse to him. They had no idea that he was using it that whole time to make the MK tank. One day, some of the trash company's representatives dropped by to check on the property. The only thing Marvin could do was cover up the giant tank with a blue tarp. But the lift he used to make the tank was still sitting out. When the reps got inside the shop, they asked what Marv's lift was. And Marvin explained that it was a cooling system he was creating that improved engines. And somehow, the reps bought that story. Marv couldn't believe his luck, because they could have literally busted him so easily if they had just looked under, under the tarp, or they didn't believe Marv's explanation. I, I had this all bullshit story, and they went along with it. You know, I said, I, I couldn't believe it when they walked out the door. <laughs> I'm safe. How come they didn't catch me? It was right there under their nose. Well, I wasn't supposed to get caught. Not yet. Maybe I will. <laughs> Maybe this whole thing will come to stop early. That's the way it's supposed to be. I will accept that. By the time the winter of 2003 rolled around, Marv had already made a lot of progress on the tank. He decided to take most of the winter off so that he could do what he loved most, snowmobiling. After all, it was going to be the last winter he'd ever experience. During the beginning of 2004, Marvin's father passed away. He was pretty heartbroken over his dad's passing, and he attended the funeral in South Dakota. 
Out of all the Hemeyer siblings, Marvin was affected the most by his dad's death. He felt more alone than he had ever felt before. And it was easy to tell that he was deeply, deeply sad. I feel pretty worthless. And I know I probably shouldn't. But to know that for 10 years, the people in the town of Granby did not want me there. And the fact that I was making good money by the 99 within, you know, eight, seven years after I, six years after I started that business, that I was making a pretty good income, I'm sure it made them very jealous. I'm sure everything about me made them jealous. I'm sorry that they felt that way. That is a bad thing, way to feel. You know, I wasn't trying to keep up with the Joneses, I know. It may be, I say that, maybe that's not true. I was always trying to be the challenges. Do it my way. Look at me. See what I do. This is what I've done. You all have the opportunity to do what I've done. I haven't done much. I mean, I graduated from high school to 28th of my class of 29. It's no big deal. I wasn't intelligent. I wasn't smart. I wasn't stupid. But I wasn't educated. I didn't have the knack to sit in the classroom and, and be a bookworm. I don't know why. I, 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 was, I may have. I don't know why. But God built me, maybe clear back in the fourth grade when I broke my arm. Because that's when my, my, my uh, grades started falling off. I don't know. He had this plan clear back then. Maybe, if you believe in predestination, which I do, maybe it was planned before I was born. Listening to Marv's tapes is like, it's hard because... And, and what's just so crazy about it is it sounds like he's like talking to somebody like he's mm -hmm. almost like explaining himself to somebody else but he's literally just talking to himself uh, just into a, a tape recorder and yeah, he sounds like he's being interviewed yeah doesn't he it sounds like he's being interviewed and he's just yeah there's something sad about it like he just seems Very. like such a lonely guy like the guy lived alone for a long long time he had a, a girlfriend trisha for a little while but i mean for the most part marv was alone a lot of the time mm-hmm and it just seems like as time goes on he's just getting more and more paranoid about everybody else around him and what they think of him and that they never liked him yeah. over the 10 years that he lived there and people in the town and people that knew him were like yeah that's just not true like we all liked marv we all had a good relationship with him and yet marv feels like he's yeah. he's all alone and nobody likes yeah. him and and it's he's got a lot of issues he definitely wrestling does. with a lot of thoughts he does Marv went up to his father's ranch for the very last time, and he took a selfie from his ranch visit. And in the photo, you can really just see how broken he is. There are tears in his eyes, and his facial expression is just filled with pain. Marvin was already an angry man, and now he was grieving on top of all that. All those strong emotions made him more and more sure of his plan. And it looks like it's going to be. Because the one thing that I have wanted to do is get caught. Uh, I had hoped that somebody would catch me and that this whole thing would stop. And that would be a good sign for me not to do it. I've hoped, I haven't played the lottery a lot, but I've hoped that I would win the lottery. And I could forget this whole thing. I could move on because then I would have my $300,000 and I would have my life back and I could, I could live the way I want to live. But, you know, I've, I, I had that money. This, this cabin was bought and paid for free. I didn't have a rental payment. People will say that, why did he do that? He had such a good life. He had a better life than me anyway. Well, I, I can understand that to a point. It's not what I deserved. You meddled in my business. 
and took what I deserved away. You took advantage of my good nature. Well, I think there's something you should learn here. For as good as a man can be, also can he be as bad. Another thing that Marv did was give away his entire $400,000 in sale money from the property to his father. And now that his father had died, all that money would be split between his siblings. And we think he did this because of the rampage that was going to ensue and all the damage that was going to be caused. He did this so that he could, his estate couldn't be sued and they could collect that money from him. So he virtually had no money to his name. At this point, everything was set and it seemed like his life on earth was reaching its natural conclusion. So I'm thinking, well, this is good. I get it inside. Now I can build it. Must be what I'm supposed to do. Put it inside under the guise that, you know, it's wintertime. I'm not going to be here. Everything's sold. I don't have a muffler shop any morning, anymore. I'm going to go snowmobiling. Um, I got to keep it out of the weather. And I got to keep it away from the friggin' criminals down there in Granby who are going to come by and sabotage it, which did happen uh, to my place more than once in the, in the 10 years, 11 years that I was down there. They, people would steal different things and so forth. I mean, it was... It's a sick town. That's other than have the store that I had in Commerce City, the muffler shop, which got broke into one time. I never had any problems with theft in any of the businesses that I ever owned, uh, or any of the shops that I ever run. But in Granby, I had problems. After he got back from the funeral, Marv started creating sort of a manifesto, and part of this manifesto was written out on the dozer's old for sale sign. He also started recording some cassette tapes, which we have been listening to, talking about his, quote, holy mission. And Marvin wrote his most famous quote on the sign. It said, I was always willing to be reasonable until I had to be unreasonable. Sometimes reasonable men must do unreasonable things. On April 13th, 2004, Marvin recorded his first tape, and he explained the zoning dispute and his reasons for committing the upcoming attack. Marvin explained that he would be doing this job in the name of God. He had no kids and had never been married, which was all part of God's plan. The fact that he didn't have a wife or kids made him perfect for this, quote, job. I want to say right now, if I would have been married, had a family, you know, things may have gone different. But God built me for this job. He rewarded me for 45, 50 years with the lifestyle that I am so thankful for. And, and it's unfortunate, the poor people in Granby, so many of them were so jealous of my lifestyle that I could come and go as I pleased. Well, God blessed me in advance. It's kind of sad. Yeah. Oh, it's very sad. Yeah. I mean, and just like saying everybody in Granby, like mm -hmm. literally everybody in yeah. Granby did him wrong. Yeah. Dude is super twisted. In total, the cassette tapes were about two and a half hours long. Marvin also wrote up a list of targets that he was going to hit on the day of his rampage. Obviously, the Dochefs were pretty high up on that list. The targets also included his attorney, the judge who dismissed his lawsuit, news editor Patrick Bauer, and every member of the town board, also the planning commission and the Thompson family. There were actually over 100 targets on that list altogether. Those who made me your enemy, they are the guilty ones. The Thompsons are guilty. The Dochefs are guilty. The Granby Town Board is guilty. The Granby Planning Commission is guilty. My neighbors are guilty. It took all of you 
10 years to get me. And you got me, no doubt about it. I got screwed big time. We talked today about it today, partner. He knows I got fucked. And he knows that they do it. And they get away with it. There's nothing you can do about it, he says. Well, I'm going to do something about it. Even the town's Catholic church had made the list of the guilty. Marvin thought that the town didn't care about their neighbors because everyone was Catholic. He's a cowardly bastard. He's a Catholic. And I think they are some of the biggest cowards I have ever met. I've known it for years. They have a different idea. They read from a different Bible. And they believe, I, I truly believe that they believe the only way that they can stay on top and give the Pope his money and all this stuff is to keep their neighbor down. So after a year and a half of hard work, the MK tank was finally complete. And now it was time to bring the wrath of God to Granby. But you gave me license to come back at you. You taught me how to act towards your neighbor. And that's how I'm going to do it. And you will learn this lesson, that that is not the way to do it. I am going to sacrifice my life, my future, to show you, my, my miserable future that you gave me, to show you that what you did was wrong. So now Marvin had pretty much got out everything he wanted to say. He had built his tank. He's ready to go. And we will get into what happened on June 4th, 2004, as soon as we take a break. So on the morning of June 4th, 2004, Marvin woke up in his shop and prepared for the big day. He hit the shower, he shaved, and he put on a Hawaiian shirt and jeans. Nice. Hawaiian shirt and Styling jeans. Them. Interesting choice. Then he mailed his cassette tapes to his brother out in South Dakota. Next, it was time to stock the dozer. He made sure it was fueled up and ready to go for as long as possible. Marvin loaded the cabin with food, water, ammo, explosives, and a gas mask. Then he loaded three semi-automatic rifles into the tank's portholes. He also put a rifle and two handguns in the dozer's control center. After that, it was time to do one final check and man the cockpit. Marvin used his lift to lower the concrete lid on top of the dozer, and now he was sealed in. He knew there was no turning back, and there was no way he was going to leave the kill dozer alive. That's crazy. Yeah. Imagine, think about. imagine mm -hmm. sealing yourself into yeah. that, knowing that there's no yeah. way out of this. Seriously. I can't even imagine being in that mental state. Yeah, I mean, he's determined. He's determined to destroy the town of Granby. So all of a sudden, the muffler shop's wall burst open. The MK tank was on the loose, and it was heading straight for Cody Dochev's concrete plant. Marv drove right into one of the plant's side buildings and crushed it in seconds. Meanwhile, Cody was working on the plant when he heard noises that sounded like explosions. When he ran over to the side of the plant, he saw the huge MK tank, and he knew instantly that Marvin Hemeyer was behind the controls. One of Cody's employees handed him a loaded revolver, and Cody shot at the tank, but it did absolutely nothing. It was like he was throwing pebbles at it. He had to act quickly before Marv brought down the main plant. Cody and his employees tried to jam an iron bar in between the wheels of the actual dozer. They got the bar in, but it didn't stop it at all. The iron just snapped in half. Basically, the wheels on the track of the, the bulldozer. Then Cody tried to climb on top of the dozer as he was going to try to shoot Marv through the roof. But Marv had greased the back of the tank, so Cody slipped right off. There was no way anyone would be able to get a grip on it. Everyone watched helplessly while Marv plowed through the side of the plant. He went to work going forwards and backwards through the support beams and parts of the wall until the side of the concrete plant caved in. 
At around 2.15 p.m., one of the plant workers called the police, and four minutes later, a deputy arrived, and this deputy's jaw dropped to the floor when he saw Marv's dozer. Of course, the deputy tried to shoot at the tank with a shotgun, but again, just ricocheted right off. And that's when Cody got an idea. He hopped into a front-end loader to see if he could try and flip the tank. Cody slammed on the gas and lodged the front-loader bucket into the tank's tracks, but when he tried to lift the bucket, the tank didn't budge. It was so heavy that Cody's back wheels lifted up almost four feet in the air. He decided to give it one last shot, and Cody backed up and slammed on the gas again, but when he rammed into the tank, his head hit the glass windshield so hard that it actually knocked him unconscious. When he came to, he saw a cloud of dust rising from the bucket of the front loader. Cody realized that Marv was actually shooting at him, and that was enough to scare Cody into backing up his dozer. Marv's work at the concrete plant was complete, and now he was going to hit the next target on his list, Mountain Parks Electric. One of the board members had worked there, so it was time to take a little drive down the highway. And meanwhile, more cops arrived on the scene, and they all were shooting at the dozer, but it made no difference. All the bullets didn't even make a dent. Marv just kept driving. A few trucks and an unmarked police car in his path were crushed by the tank. Once the tank pulled out onto the highway, another police officer tried to climb on its roof. He wanted to see if he could shoot Marv through the entryway. That officer was actually able to climb on top successfully, but that's when he saw that the tank didn't have an entryway. It was just a roof vent. The officer fired six shots in the air vent and six shots at the roof, but that did nothing. He fired more shots at their surveillance cameras, but the rounds just bounced off the bulletproof plastic. Another officer tossed him a flashbang, and he threw it down the air vent, and the stun grenade exploded. It shook the tank and started spewing out white smoke. But as you could probably guess, the flashbang didn't work either. And now the police officer was stuck on the roof of the tank. So he held on for dear life while Marv is starting to rip through the Mountain Park's electric building. The next target was the Granby Town Hall. Once Marv had finished the job at the electric building, he started heading for his next enemy. And at this point, police are getting desperate. They shot at the tank with armor-piercing bullets, and they even were able to disable Marvin's side gun ports. But that still didn't stop the tank. The police officer who jumped on top was still clinging onto the roof at this point when Marv hits the Maple Street builders. He realized that the falling debris could crush him, so he fired a few more shots at the roof and then hopped off. Also at this point, the police are scrambling to have the town evacuated. They sent out a reverse 911 call to Granby residents and warned them about the bulldozer rampage. Another message, the BMG has been shooting 300 yards, 343. Look at that thing. Thank you. Huge. 1554. Look how tall it is. It's just thick, thick walls and armor all around it. It's really slow. Yeah. yeah. So it had like a, a actual plow in the front, and then in the back it had what's called a ripper. So it like hooks onto stuff and you can rip walls out. Mm-hmm. He's also shooting out of the portholes. He's got yeah. large caliber rifles that he's shooting. Uh, at officers and things like that whenever he gets mm-hmm. a chance he's just firing off bullets so obviously people are keeping their distance from this thing as much as they can and taking cover so the scariest part of this day 
was that the town hall actually contained the town's library. And that day, a group of kids were visiting the children's center. So local parents were praying that their kids made it out of the building before Marvin's tank smashed through the town hall's front entrance. That's so scary. God. I know. And luckily, they Luckily, did. that thing is slow. Yeah. yeah. So they were able to get people out of there before he plowed into it. Mm-hmm. And now that the town hall was destroyed, Marv headed down Main Street. He plowed through a bank and then locked in on his next target, Patrick Brower, the editor of Sky High News. The police knew that Marvin had a beef with Brower. They were already on their way to the news building, trying to warn Patrick that he was next on the list. Patrick and his 16-year-old son had been spending a normal day at work when a police officer burst inside and shouted at them to get out of the building and told him that he was on the list. But he had no idea what the cop was talking about. He didn't know that the tank was currently destroying Granby as they spoke. But when he ran outside and saw the tank headed straight for him, he knew it was Marvin Hemeyer out for revenge. So, of course, he grabs everyone inside the building and told them to evacuate. And luckily, they all managed to get out safely before the tank pulverized the news building. There he goes. police can really do at this point is just stand yeah. and watch like yeah. they have no way to stop this thing they tried multiple different equipment oh my god yeah they tried to go get a big uh, construction scraper one of those big big rigs to, to try to like block it in just moves it right out of the way imagine how loud it had to be oh, yeah. inside especially yeah well let's get him up here just as fast as we can Patrick Brower watched while the walls around him crumbled, and he bolted out of the building right before the ceiling behind him collapsed. At the end of the day, Patrick was still a committed journalist, and he actually managed to snap a few pictures of the tank. But when Marvin saw him through the security cameras, he grabbed a hold of his gun and aimed it right for Patrick. The bullets flew right past his head, and he was luckily able to get to safety before his photo shoot nearly cost him his life. Nothing. 
Marvin was on the run again, and this time he was heading towards another likely target, the Thompson family. So the police called up the Thompson boys and warned them to evacuate their house. The boys weren't home at the time, but their 82-year-old mother, Thelma, was. Would you call 887-3710? That's the Thompson residence. We think the vehicle is the uh, bulldozers headed there. We need to have everybody evacuated out of the Thompson's residence. Like it's really only that loud when he's plowing through shit. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise it's not that loud. It could be the camera's not picking up that much of a super old camera. I'm heading back to his location by the substation. They called Thelma and told her that a bulldozer was headed for her house and that she needed to get out of there as soon as possible. At first Thelma thought it was a joke, but the police were able to get there just in the nick of time before Marvin showed up. And when Marvin showed up, his tank plowed right through the house and it only took a few seconds for the dozer to turn it into a pile of debris. The Thompson's businesses were next on the hit list. Marvin went and destroyed their offices, warehouses, and rental properties. At one point, he pushed an Excel Energy pickup into a building and folded it up in half. Easy, too. Super easy. Crazy. News crews started to show up to the scene and capture footage of the attack. People began to form crowds on Main Street, and they all watched in complete shock while the dozer ran right through the town. One of Marvin's friends heard that a madman was driving a bulldozer through town, and instantly she knew it was Marvin Hemeyer. And he talked with me about doing this uh, back in January, and just in a conversation while we were having dinner, and of course I thought that he was just kidding. I had no idea that he would follow through with it and continue. Bonnie, without giving us his name, and please don't, uh, tell us, when you did talk to him, and he, he was planning this, according to you, did he mention the buildings he was going to hit, the specific buildings? Um, no, he just said that the people that um, caused him harm, that he, that he was going to, um, well, I, I'm trying to think of how I put it, that, that he would pay them back Bonnie. for what they had done to him. And you really thought he was just kidding? That, yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. But I think about it. If somebody told you that, would you believe them? I mean, with well, that, na- well, with nowadays, that, looking back, obviously now with all the crazy stuff we have going on now, we're yeah, all like yeah. hypersensitive to that kind of stuff. But yeah, like back in the nineties, yeah, no, did people right. th- when people said crazy things like it's just that? Frustrating. Did they I hate it? when I hear things like that that someone knew. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's like if you hear something yeah. that is concerning, you think say Marvin something about was the it, type but, to kid. I don't know. I'm I mean, he was, basically saying he's gonna seek revenge on these people i don't know but if you only knew marvin as like this nice loving guy who was like who never had done anything violent or didn't have a criminal history or anything like that would you and he was clearly upset about some you know he was upset and people say crazy shit when they're upset too right no it's true so it's like i feel like you can only blame her so much yeah the police are trying to figure out how to stop marvin and his rampage and they were using their heaviest artillery but the dozer was just too strong, and things started to get more and more dangerous as time went on. Marvin was headed towards independent gas now, and the situation could have gotten very deadly very quickly. Independent gas was a company that made giant propane tanks, and all these tanks were lined up right next to each other in the warehouse. It was also located right near houses and a senior living facility, and if any of those tanks ignited, it would cause an explosion that would kill everyone in the immediate area. I mean, we're talking like a huge bomb going off. Marvin arrived at the plant and started to aim his guns towards the propane tanks, but the tank's armor made it too difficult to aim the guns properly. Every time he shot toward the tanks, the tank's ripper 
block the shot. So you'd fire it and just immediately ricochet, which thank God that it didn't work. This is when we first arrived on scene, and it looked like uh, officers standing on a hill above this uh, earth mover turned tank were firing some pretty heavy arms at him, trying to find a weak spot, trying to find some way to uh, immobilize. This man was now on the east side of Granby in what's called an independent propane company yard. We thought for a time he might actually be taking out some of the propane tanks. He kind of looked like that's what he was thinking about, and then he took off and headed into the downtown area again. I'm surprised... At this point, he didn't just like drive the dozer into the propane tanks. Yeah. Yeah. Because that probably would have set one of them off. And I mean, obviously, it would have mm -hmm. um, killed him too. But it's interesting that he just decided to like keep firing off his guns at it. At least still going to get keep through his on, list. Right. He was going to, I guess that's why he didn't do that. But it was a small miracle that the gunshots were just ricocheting off of the dozer's ripper. And it probably saved a lot of lives because of that. Once Marv realized that he couldn't shoot the tanks, he moved on, but police were still trying to stop him in his tracks. The SWAT team had also finally arrived. The police tried to use a giant construction scraper vehicle to stop the tank. They lined it up horizontally on the dirt road, which blocked Marvin's path, but Marvin plowed right through the earth mover. It was pretty much powerless to stop this rampage. Then Marvin drove towards the Gamble's hardware store. One of the owners of the shop was on the town board, so Marv definitely wanted to take their business out. Look at the person who's inside. We never did, and I think that because he geared this up, he outfitted it to act like a tank, that he has a very had a very tiny kind of viewpoint, uh, point of view that he could see out of. We were skeptical when we first arrived on Look scene that there was any way for him yeah. to fire this, uh, fire any weapons out of this, and I think that's exactly the case. What you see on top of there is debris, some uh, venting, a whole lot of cinder blocks. He's actually pushing cinder blocks. These uh, these are remnants. This is debris from the buildings he's taken out over the course of the past hour or so prior to when these pictures were taken. Now, if you'll stay with us, he is just headed westbound again. This is tape. He is just again headed westbound into the downtown area. Right there, may have taken out a radiator. Oh. He doesn't stop for light poles. Oh. He doesn't stop for buildings. He takes out the corner of the copycat store. Again, this is right in downtown Granby. And then the gamble store next to this became another prime uh -oh. target. He backed up while the radiator's smoking, while he has any power left, he's going to attack that Gamble's appliance store. Many of the stores, the buildings, the offices that we have seen him take out apparently seem to have some rhyme or reason to him, uh, some kind of history, some kind of ongoing gripe that were part of his problem with the, the city officials and some of the other business owners in Granby. He's going to turn around here and make one last stand and, and shove that uh, Caterpillar into the Gamble's appliance store. Lou, according to some witnesses, that he reportedly also is armed with a machine gun. Can you see that from your vantage point? We, we think there is absolutely no truth to that. We were hearing different reports, some along those lines. We also heard reports that at one point they were trying to get an armor-piercing machine gun brought in from Hot Sulphur Springs, which is about 10 miles down the highway. That apparently was their thought as to what their only hope was as to how to stop this man. But he actually ended up stopping himself. You can see now that long stream of, of wet pavement there. That's the radiator. Apparently took out the hose or some other part of a radiator underneath his caterpillar. And he is going to make one last stand, go over the curb, and start punching his way into the gamble store and into the back of that. When we left the area of Granby about 20 minutes ago, he had wedged himself in the back end of this store um, and, began, and apparently had taken out the radiator. He'd become immobilized, and we had SWAT team members trying to figure out how to get inside the, the caterpillar. So, yeah, as you just saw, radiators out, the cooling systems malfunctioning. 
mm-hmm. engine starting to overheat and there's smoke coming out of it. I mean, Marvin knows that he's running out of time. Yep. This cloud of smoke also made it very hard for him to see, but he still pressed on. He was determined to finish the job. It took him a little time to steady the tank, but he was able to ram it into the gamble store. But Marvin didn't realize that the gamble store actually had a basement. So when he plowed the tank into the side of it, the dozer's tread fell into it and got stuck. And Marvin tried his best to move the dozer out of the hole, but it was no use. Marvin realized that he was trapped, so he turned off the engine and sat for a few minutes. It was at this point that the mission was over and he reached the end of his life. And it was at that moment that Marvin reached for a revolver and held it against the roof of his mouth. All of a sudden, the officers heard a noise that sounded like a gunshot coming from inside of the tank. And then everything went quiet. The two-hour rampage was finally over. Nobody knows what Marvin Hemeyer was thinking at the time he took his last breath, but it's pretty safe to assume that he died knowing that he completed his final mission. The police tried to open the tank using explosives, but after three failed explosions, they used specialized torches to cut through the top of the armor. It took them 12 hours to get inside. At 2 a.m. the next day, they found Marvin's body in the cockpit. Thankfully, no one was hurt in the rampage. Honestly, a miracle. Yeah. The only person who was killed in Marvin's rampage was Marvin himself. But the Granby's main street had been completely destroyed. It looked like a tornado had blown through the town. Overall, Marvin's rampage caused over $7 million in damage and destroyed 13 buildings. Marvin's body was cremated, and his ex girlfriend, Trisha, and his fellow snowmobilers took his ashes up Gravel Mountain and scattered them on his favorite trail. The story of Marvin Hemeyer's killdozer didn't make much news, as he probably expected. That's because the day after the rampage, former President Ronald Reagan died. A year after the rampage, the town of Granby decided to take apart and scrap the killdozer because they didn't want any of Marvin's fans to take pieces of the dozer as souvenirs. So they shipped the scraps off to different parts of the country. It took the town of Granby eight years to repair all of the damages from Marvin's rampage. It definitely changed the townspeople's perspective on outsiders, but for the most part, they've tried to move on. Yeah, the uh, Mountain Park concrete was rebuilt, but then I looked on Google and it says it's closed again. And I even tried calling them because I just wanted to see in there. You did? Yeah, there's still like a voicemail, though. Really? Yeah, it's weird. But on Google, it says it's closed. But um, they have like really bad reviews because on Google was getting the phone number and I was looking at the reviews and it's all one stars and people are like ripping this place apart and wow and like blaming them yeah for, blaming for them. Marvin doing all this and mm-hmm. that they sort you know there's a lot that's the thing with it is there's a lot of people that are on Marvin's side with this and they think that all these people in the town pushed him to do this mm-hmm. and it's their fault that this all happened yeah I took some screenshots of the reviews one of them's disgusting and horrible people own this plant they have destroyed Marvin Hemeyer's life and drove him into the killdozer. If you read this and still consider to use this company's services, you're nothing but a weak and cowardly pushover. And that has 20 thumbs up. There's another one that says, this place is terrible and their mixes are awful. Don't buy from them. And also be ready when the new film hits the internet and they see what you had done to Marvin. You and your town are corrupt officials are going to rot in hell. Imagine building a cement factory on the only access road to a hardworking man's muffler repair shop. The nerve. R.I.P. Marvin. I hope this misses falls when the owner finally perish. <laughs> Jeez. And how many people does this company have to screw over before it's shut down? Will it take another killdozer event or worse in order to end the corruption of this company? Like people are just ripping this yeah, place wow. online. Interesting. 
what's interesting too is based on the dates especially like Gregory's review was two years ago it kind of falls in line when a movie slash documentary mm-hmm. was released on Marvin's story called Tread um, came out and it'd be interesting if anybody out there has seen Tread and what your thoughts are on it because Tread really did try to like get both sides and obviously interviewed a lot of the people that Marvin had beef with and they all deny that they ever did anything wrong to yeah. him and yet Marvin is so like steadfast on his opinion that they all wronged him. Mm. So it seems like these people may have been, you know, people that watched the movie and then went and were angry by what they had seen and left these reviews on these businesses. But the Thompson family still lives in Granby too and their businesses were rebuilt. The boys have enough money to retire, but they'd still rather work for the family business. The Gamble store owners were devastated by the attack. Their store wasn't rebuilt until 2012. A Russian director heard about Marvin's story and turned it into a Russian language film called Leviathan. The movie was released in 2014 and it won a lot of awards. Marvin named his dozer the MK Tank, but most know it as Killdozer. The name Killdozer came from the public. There was an old movie from the 70s called Killdozer where a demon-possessed dozer goes on a killing rampage. One of Marvin's targets on the list, Patrick Brower, actually wrote a book about the rampage. It was adapted into a documentary and named Tread, which was released in 2019. Today, Marvin has become kind of an American folk hero. A lot of people see him as the vigilante who gave the town what they deserved. He's become kind of a patron saint of the little guy, like the little guy against the big guy or the government. Mm, Yeah, but Patrick doesn't think people should remember Marvin Heemeyer as a hero at all. So, is Marvin a hero? Mm -hmm. What do we think? I don't know, guys. Well, he wasn't... He didn't kill anyone else, obviously, but himself. Yeah. But he could have. He could have killed yeah, a whole honestly, library full of well, kids. I think some people online talk about how he was a hero because he purposely didn't kill anyone. But I don't think he purposely didn't. No, kill yeah, I don't think he could really see what like, he was doing. I think he just that's just how it played out. But I don't think he yeah. was like out here being like, oh, well, let me avoid people, especially with yeah. all of his guns shooting out. Like, yeah, he tried to shoot Patrick yeah. in the head. So, yeah, he was, he was shooting at police to too. Shit. I mean, he had, he yeah. was armored to the arm to the teeth. I mean, I think, I think honestly, he probably went to his death thinking he probably killed. I bet people mm-hmm. in the process. Yeah, of it. I, I mean, when yeah. you're bulldozing buildings and building, you know, buildings are caving in. How did he know that everybody got evacuated? Yeah, Josh and I were discussing that last week. You know, would he have actually killed himself if he knew? That, that everyone had anybody. survived. Yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, that guilt or I was like, possibly facing right. those charges would have. Right. Mm-hmm. He probably thought that there, you know, the end would have been prison or death sentence or something would have been mm-hmm. handed down to him if he had come out of this alive. I mean, I personally don't think he was ever. No. Thinking I, think so I think this was a, a suicide mission totally. for him for sure. Yeah. I mean, even the tapes, I mean, you could tell. Yeah. He, well, he said it was like, this is yeah. this is God's yeah, plan. This say. is what I'm going to do. But I mean, in actuality, if he had given himself up yeah. and they had taken him out of the dozer, I mean, $7 million worth of damage. He did shoot at officers. But chances are, I would be I would have been surprised if he had actually gotten a life sentence for this. No, Same. I don't think so. You think he would have got a life sentence for this? No, I don't think he Yeah, would. I think yeah. he no. probably would have went to prison for a while. But I yeah. think, I don't think this would have. Because nobody was injured or killed, and there was no bottle. It seems like he didn't even want to face people anyway. Well, I think he literally was convinced that this is what God wanted for him. So it's not even a matter of like, oh, I didn't keep, I didn't kill people, so maybe I could get a 
get away with it in the sense like he right. didn't i don't think he cared he's like this is yeah. what god is telling me to do this is how i'm gonna die and that's it, that's it. yeah and it's like it's the whole mission is about fighting you know the big guy fighting the government the corrupt government that's out to get the little guy i think and, and that's where people you know depending on your political views and things like that you know you might side with marvin if you really believe that he was wronged by the local government they were screwing him I they were trying to run him out of town i mean i th i think he was screwed by them yeah. in a lot of ways oh and i'm sure I he was have sympathy for him in that sense but i just i don't know this there's nothing to justify taking this type of violent no obviously not but like it, it's interesting though that everybody that was interviewed yeah it, during tread was like yeah. We tried to reason with him. We tried yeah. to figure out a, a peaceful way out of this. But are and, they just saying that? Uh, right, say. to make themselves look good right. yeah. or, you know, not look. And that's the hard thing is like, whose word do you believe? Do you believe right. all of the townspeople or do you believe Marvin? And mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's. I mean, there's no way we'll ever know who is truly right in this situation yeah. unless, you know, you were in sort of that inner circle of, of Granby, yeah. but... Yeah, I just truly don't think there's any justification for this type of rage, this type of violence. No, absolutely not. I mean, it's just... It could have been so much worse. Mm -hmm. It could have been. It could have been. I mean... It's probably if, why it didn't make as much news coverage. I mean, Reagan, too, dying the next day, but... Um, I mean, it made think, it local though, news coverage. You think it would have gone viral just because it's like such a yeah. one-off, like, yeah. where else have you ever heard of a story like this? I'm trying to think, 2004, how old were we? We were in like fourth. We were like 10, 11, like probably like 12, yeah. something like mm. that, 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. I think I don't it's, remember it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember it either. I bet my parents do, though. Right. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, Marvin could have walked away from everything with $400,000 he made from the sale and he made a decent amount of money off with his shop after everything was all said and done. I mean, he could have walked away, made, made a good amount of money to start over, but it, to him, it became more than just. Yeah. He didn't want to be run out of town ultimately. Right. He felt like he did, he had every right mm -hmm. to be there. He had worked hard for 10 years to be in this town and that they were screwing him out of living there and everything that he had worked so hard for. So it came down to principle for Marvin. Like Marvin, out of principle, he did not want to back down. He wanted to put up a fight against the, the corrupt town that was trying to run him mm -hmm. you know, out of there. And this was the only way that he saw he could do it. And so yeah. this is what he did. Well, we want to know what you all think about Marvin's rampage and the whole story. Yeah. Was he justified in this? Was he not? Obviously, he wasn't justified in the rampage, but was he justified in being upset about what all the things that the town was doing to him? Yeah. Huh. You know. I don't know. Interested to hear feedback on this one for sure. Yeah. I just thought this was a really wild, yeah. wild story. It is. Out of, you know, out Very of our backyard practically. So. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Yeah, let us know your thoughts on this, but we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Mahal Heart Podcast. We'll be back next week with a really, really cool episode, a collaboration, yeah. in fact, yes. with another podcast, which we've never done this before. Yeah. We've never collabed with another You're podcast. Right. Yeah, it's going to be really fun. We're really looking And I'm to sure it. you guys will really enjoy what we got coming up. Yeah. But until next time, keep taking your life. Oh, my.